So we've been in this series called Wish You Were Here, and I've, I've talked about why I love the idea of wishes. You can tell a lot about a person depending on what they wish for. Uh, clearly, they didn't ask my kids what they wish for because their wishes are so outrageous. Um, but you can tell a lot of, about a person. Uh, what's interesting about wishes also um, is, is as we kind of wish, uh, make wishes for ourselves, sometimes you may find yourself doing this, we realize where we are and we wish we were somewhere else. So we've been saying it this way. I, we, we realize here's where we are, but we wish we were here. And what's really interesting about that idea is that all of us at some point in our lives, this is like an oscate, <clears throat> every one of us at some point has been told how to get from here to where we wish we are. Isn't that interesting? It's like this universal principle. Somebody already knows. Somebody knows where you are, and somebody already has an idea of how to get from where you are to where you want to be. The really interesting is they've actually been there. They've been through that. They know what you're going through. They know where you are. They know where you want to be, and they know how to get there. <clears throat> What's even more interesting, and really what makes this more personal for us, is that we probably already know these people. We've probably met them. We've actually already talked to them. And for some of them, it would be dad or, or granddad or son or, 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 or friend. And it's like, I, I know where you're at. I see what you're going through. I, I have the perspective. I, I see what's happening in your life. I know where you are, and I know where you want to be. And if, if you would just listen to it, I could get you there. I could help. I, I, I see the mistakes that you could make. I see the pitfalls. I know how to get you from where you are to where you ultimately want to be. But what's, what's really challenging is that for, for many of us, we hear that, but we don't end up doing it. Have you ever asked why? Now, I, I can't speak to, to both genders, so for a moment, I'm just going to talk to men because I'm a man, but this might be the same for women. I'll, I'll be a little careful with that, but for, for men, I, I feel like this is true for us. If, if you're a man, as a matter of fact, if you're a man and you're here, like props to you because statistics say that most men don't like going to church. And I know why most men don't like going to church. And, and ladies, you're not going to get this. So for men, I'm going to speak to you guys for a second and put some words around this. But, but men typically don't like to go to church because here's what happens in church. Some guy like me gets up on stage and tells you what to do. And men, we don't like being told what to do, do we? I get it. We don't. We're uncomfortable with it. That's why when somebody says, I see where you're at and I know how to get you to where you want to be, we don't typically listen because you know, no one's, no one's going to tell me what to do. Then you come to church, and some guy like me, he knows nothing about you and doesn't, may not even know your name, tells you what to do. And you get in the car, and you know your wife or your girlfriend, your significant other, whoever they sit with you, goes, wasn't that great? Wasn't that preacher so awesome? And wasn't that message amazing? And you kind of sit back to yourself like, well, hold on. Like, no one's going to tell me what to do. And you may not say that out loud. You'll say it this way. Then you start to critique and evaluate the message. Like, oh, you know, he did say this, but I really think he meant that. And he didn't say this, and I think he really should have said this. And you just begin to kind of critique and push the message down. And the, the, the truth is, I get that because I'm a guy. I do the same thing. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. The problem is, is that you, you've taken a moment to undermine yourself. And you've really become your own worst enemy because somebody else from the outside knows where you are and knows how to get you to where you want to be. But you're not going to do it because no one tells me what to do. So we don't listen. And we end up in the same place we've always been. And 5, 10, 15 years later, we kind of look back and we say, but God, I thought you were with me. I, like, I, I, I thought we, we could get over there. Like, God, but why didn't you answer me? God's thinking, I did. Don't, don't you remember Don't you remember that Sunday you went to that church with that weird-looking preacher and he said something and you were just like, oh, whatever. 
I, I told you. Don't you remember the time you showed up to that, that meeting with your, your one-on-one with your boss, and your boss kind of had a 360, and he said something to you, and then you left, and you, the eight people around you who you work with, they all said the same thing, and you're thinking, oh, you're all nuts. Like, I, I, I told you. But God, I want you to speak. And God said, but I, I, I can't speak it any more than I already have. I already told you you're just not listening. Because no one tells you, ultimately, what to do. So today we're going to look at a really interesting story. It's a story in the Old Testament, and the truth is you've probably heard this story before. If you've been with Journey for a while, you've heard it before because I've preached it before. But I think it's this amazing story that speaks into this idea of of I know where I am, and I know it's not exactly where I want to be. I really wish I was at this point in my life. I wish I was maybe this kind of a father or this kind of a mother, this kind of an employee or an employer. I just wish I was further along the path. This, this whole idea of the story is, is this one guy had this amazing opportunity to, to, to move from where he was to what he ultimately wanted to be. It, it was just the people he surrounded himself with that, that kind of was the, the, the difference. It, it was that, that moment where something significant could happen, but it didn't go the way it should have gone. So this is an Old Testament story, and if you're familiar with it, your mind's going to rush to the end, but I want you for a moment to just take a step back and roll through the story with me. My my hope is that it kind of softens you, because if you're at a place in your life where you want to be somewhere you're not, and somebody's speaking into that, I hope that it softens you enough to say, you know what, I'm going to listen, I'm going to hear, and just maybe I'll, I'll do, and I'll get to where I ultimately want to be. So here's a little context. This story's around the nation of Israel. Israel is this really unique nation. It was kind of chosen by God to be this example to the world of what a nation would be like if it actually followed after God. And God kind of set up their government this way. It was a theocracy. There, was, there would be rules that were established by God, and then the rules would be carried out by a bunch of judges. I know. Sounds amazing, right? The, the rules would be given, the rules would become law, and then the laws would be carried out and kind of applied by a bunch of judges. It happened in the nations of Israel thousands of years ago. It just took the rest of the world like a gazillion years to catch up to realize that's the way it should be. In Israel, this is the way God set it up. It wasn't a king. It wasn't a kingship. It wasn't a, you know, a dictatorship or any other rule. God set the rules. That becomes law. And then a bunch of judges decide how the law is applied. Except that Israel kind of looked at it the rest of the world and said, but everybody else has a king. I want a king. Mom, everybody else has an iPhone. I want an iPhone. It's, it's the same thing. It started all the way back then. God, they have a king. We want a king. So God said, okay, I'll give you a king. It's not going to go well for you, but, but here it is. So God established the, the kind of the, the rule or the kingship of the nation of Israel. It started with a guy named Saul. <clears throat> Saul ruled for about 40 years. He made some mistakes. Then David, you guys know this guy, David, he kind of stepped up. And he, he, what's oddly enough is that Saul had a son, and the kingship didn't pass to the son. It passed to this guy, David. David was the hero of the people who defeated Goliath. He was a man after God's own heart. David then took up, and then David's kind of excited because he's been promised that, that somebody in his family would take over and kind of rule over Israel for, for years, and he's now excited. Who's it going to be next? So David has a son, and his name's Solomon, and Solomon takes over, and he rules, and they, all these guys kind of rule for 40 years, and they think it's going to continue down the line. <clears throat> so it comes down to Solomon's son. Solomon has a son, and he thinks this is going to be the guy, Rehoboam. Rehoboam's going to rule, Rehoboam's going to lead, and this is kind of... <clears throat> the, the, the characters in our story. So I want us all to say this name together, and I'll tell you why in a minute. It's important, but just so we don't get confused, can we all say this name together? Ready? One, two, three. Rehoboam. Rehoboam. And the reason that's important is because there's another Boam that enters the story, and this guy's name is Jeroboam. Jeroboam isn't related or connected to really anyone in this story, except that he serves under Solomon. He's this brilliant soldier. He's, he's got this, this really kind of analytical mind. He's just a, a brilliant guy. And 
he kind of worked himself up through the ranks and became very notable and, and very kind of uh, powerful within, within this civilization, within this culture, so much so that Solomon makes him kind of the, the administrator or the overseer of, of a, a large group of people. Solomon is this king who likes to build cities, and he builds these massive cities. And these, these cities need a lot of workers. It's estimated by, by, by smart people, people much smarter than me, that Solomon had about 150,000 stone cutters and stone transporters. 150,000 people just to cut stone and move stone to these massive cities that Solomon would build. It was forced laborers. Just so you get an idea of that, that's over 10 times the size of Hamden. That's the amount of people that this one man, Jeroboam, was kind of over. He just had this, this great administrative skill. He was a, a kind of a hero of the people. So much so that this rumor started to spread that, that when Solomon kicked the bucket, not Rehoboam, but Jeroboam was going to become king. Jeroboam got wind of this, and he got scared because in this culture, if that kind of thing gets out, your life's on the line. So Jeroboam, one day is leading, and the next day he's nowhere to be found. We pick up with Jeroboam. They find him in Egypt years later. He's like, I'm out. This, this, this rumor's gone out, and either I run for my life or somebody shows up in the middle of the night and takes my life. So Jeroboam flees to Egypt, and <clears throat> our story's going to pick up with Solomon. Di- I don't think I said anything that good there. <laughs> it wasn't me. We good? I don't want to scare anyone else. <clears throat> our story picks up with, with Solomon dying, and Jeroboam and, and, and Rehoboam, there's now this transition of power to Rehoboam. So this is where our story is going to pick up. Rehoboam, he's now the, the son of Solomon. This is our guy. He goes to Shechem. Shechem is kind of the, the capital city of this nation of Israel. It, Jerusalem becomes the capital city later, but at this point in time, Shechem's the city. It's this really important city these, to these ancient uh, Jewish people. They go uh, to Shechem. For all of Israel had gone there to make him king, to kind of crown him as king. When Jeroboam, this is our character, this is the, the guy who, who was this incredible leader. The people wanted him to become king, but he got scared and he ran. When Jeroboam, who was the son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. This is kind of that parenthetical note. Like, So if you're reading this, the guy, author is trying to say, I just want you to know what's going on. Jeroboam's in Egypt because he fled from King Solomon when that rumor went out that he was going to become king. When he heard that Solomon was dead, when he heard that the transition of leadership's kind of moving on to his son, he thinks, okay, I'm safe. I can go back. So he returns from Egypt to his people, and the people are, are excited, like, finally, this is the guy we love, Jeroboam's back, Solomon's dead, maybe all this crazy building of cities, we, like, we can move on past this, and, like, they're excited about, about this transition, about this, this transition of leadership and where God's taking this nation. They're really excited, so they all kind of gather with, with all of this excitement about what God is about to do. So they send for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him. Now, this is important because this isn't all of Israel. This is representatives of all the 12 tribes of Israel. They're kind of led by Jeroboam to go to Shechem to meet Rehoboam, who's about to be crowned king, a representative of his entire nation that he's about to lead, show up to crown him as king. And they say, Rehoboam, we want you to know we're on your side. We want you to know we want you to be king. We just have one request. This was the request they made. Your father, Solomon, He put a heavy yoke on us, but lightened that harsh labor and the heavy yoke that he put on us. And Rehoboam, we will serve you faithfully. Rehoboam, you need to know this. We love you. We want you to be king. We're excited about you being our king. But but we just just want you for a moment to, to, to take a step back, to not be the king like your dad. We're excited about this new king. We just want a different kind of king. 
Your daddy was crazy with this building and, and, and on all of this, this, this constant building and forced labor and free labor. Like, would you just like lighten that load? And all of us, the 12 tribes, we will serve you faithfully and make you our king. You see, we, we don't realize this, but Solomon, later in his life, he married many, many women, many foreign women from foreign nations to basically sign these treaties to keep peace or you know, to, to get more produce or to, to, to extend his regions or to become wealthier. He would marry these foreign women, and then he would bring them into the, the nation of Israel to, to sign these treaties. Well, in every polygamous nation, and, and you might not know this, hopefully you don't know this, um, in every polygamous nation, and guys, this is going to be really interesting because, you know, usually it's guys that fight for polygamy, but no woman, every woman is smart. They're way too smart to have four husbands. <clears throat> but in, in polygamous nations, there's this, this kind of unwritten rule, whether it's, it's a city like, or a nation rather, like Israel, or, or in cities, or in, even in small villages and small cultures, that if a man were to take more than, than one wife, he would have to build a home for every additional wife he has. Now, understand this. That we're not talking like rooms being added onto a house, because you get why that's weird, right? Separate houses for every single wife. This is one of the biggest things that people argue against polygamy for. Like, that's just unrealistic. Who, who can afford that? Well, Solomon was like the wealthiest guy in the world. So he'd marry these foreign women, and instead of going out and just building them like a separate house or like a separate castle, which would be awesome... He would build them an entire city, a city that looked like their culture so they would feel at home. So he marries these hundreds of foreign women from foreign nations, and then he sends these 150,000 forced laborers out to build them cities. The people are upset. There's just resentment like, God, Solomon, like, this isn't our fault that you want to marry all these people. I don't want to go and build them a city so they feel comfortable in my nation. Rehoboam, don't be like your dad. Like, lighten the load a little bit, and, and man, we'll serve you forever. The people just, they just wanted a break. There was all this tension. And Rehoboam's faced now with a quandary. What do I do? So Rehoboam, he makes two really good decisions up front. Rehoboam answers them and he says this. <clears throat> he says, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. He basically said, okay, I, I hear your concern. I hear the tension. I understand all that. Do me a favor. Go away for a little bit and give me some time. First good decision. Just give me some time to think about this. Give me some time to mull it over. Come back in three days. Really good decision. The second decision he makes is, is what we're going to read next. It's, hey, give me some time so that I can seek some advice. Rehoboam says, hey, go away for three days. Come back and I'll have an answer for you. And then King Rehoboam, he consults with the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. These are the guys who are older, who are wiser. They've kind of been there and done that. They've gone through Solomon's reign. They know that they got to have their thumb on the pulse of the culture and the people. They know the tension that's there. They know how the people are feeling and where the people are leaning. And so he kind of leans in. Hey, go away. Give me some time so I can get some advice. And then he talks to these wise men. And these wise men are basically going to give him an answer. Hey, hey, what should I do with this? If you were in my shoes, what would you say to these people? So the wise elders respond like this. <clears throat> How would you advise me to answer these people, Rehoboam asked. Then they replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Rehoboam, I, I, think, I think I know what you want. I think you want to be the king of a united nation, a nation that's, that's proud to have you as their king. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, if you want to be the king of a united nation, then here's what you need to do. You need to put their needs above your needs. You've got to put their interests ahead of your own. 
And if you would put their interests ahead of your own by their own admission, the nations would come together. They would rally behind you and they would faithfully serve you forever. You just have to put their interests above your own. I mean, that's, that's, we know that's the answer to things, right? That's how we have a happy marriage. That's how we have happy employees. But Ray Bohm, he's just, yeah. something doesn't set right with him. I mean, but that's how you have a happy kingdom. It's how you become a good king. You want to have a united nation? You want to lead people that are happy that you're leading them? Yeah. Then do this. Put their interests ahead of your own. Ray Bohm, he kind of responds how we respond in situations like this. Nah, I don't think I like that advice. Ray Bohm, he rejects the advice of the elders. And then he begins to, to encounter the greatest struggle of his life. Men, we struggle with this. We don't like when people tell us what to do. We don't, we don't want to be forced to do something that, that, we, that we might not agree with. But, but here's, here's the interesting thing, is that the advice that was given him would get him exactly from where he was to where he wanted to be. But Rehoboam couldn't hear it. You see, it, it wasn't what he needed. It was what he needed to hear, rather. But it wasn't what he wanted to do. It's the, the exact advice he needed to hear. But it wasn't what he wanted to do. You want to be the king of the United Nations? Yes. You want the people to rally behind you and serve you faithfully? Yes. Put their interests ahead of your own. Not only that, it was ultimately where he wanted to be, but just not how he wanted to get there. That is what I want, but I'm king. Well, you're almost king. You're the son of a king. And if you want to go from son of the king to king of the United Kingdom, put their interest ahead of your own. And Rehoboam's saying, yeah, but, but no one tells a king what to do. Kings don't take advice. Kings give advice. No one tells a king how to be a king. But Rehoboam, this, this is the way. You see, it's the direction, not the intention, that determines our destination. He intended to be a king of united people. He intended to have the people rally around him and serve him faithfully. He just didn't like the way to get there. So Rehoboam, like all of us, rejects the advice the elders give to him. Kings don't take advice. Kings give it. Kings do what they want to do. And here's the trap. Here's where, what, what he does next. He goes and he, he finds some people who, who want going to speak to him what he wants to hear. That's usually what we do, right? We, we, we don't hear what we like, so then we find somebody who's going to say what we like. And if we look far enough, we'll always find somebody who's going who's to give us the advice we want to hear. We usually do this, and what's really interesting is then we end up, we hear what we want to hear, we do what we want to do, and then we end up in the exact place we don't want to be. Let me say that again. We, we, we know we want to be somewhere, so we seek advice that, that tells us what we want to do, and then we do exactly what we want to do, and we end up exactly where we don't want to be. We see it in our finances. We see it in our marriage. We see it in our relationships. We see it with our children. We see it with the people we work with or the people we work for. We see it for the people who work underneath us. We, we, we do this kind of thing all, all the time. It's, it, it, we do it with our health. Well, I, you know, I just want to eat it, so I'm going to eat it whenever I want to eat it, however I want to eat it, and then I end up overweight. And I say, why am I overweight? Well, I did exactly what I wanted to do, exactly what I wanted to do it, but I ended up where I don't want to be. 
It's the same thing with exercise. And, and well, I, I didn't want to exercise, so I didn't exercise, and now I, I'm I'm heavy and I'm overweight, and I'm where I don't want to be. This is exactly what happens to Rehoboam. Rehoboam rejects the advice of the elders, and he consults then with younger men who had grown up with him, who are serving him, people who have no idea where he's going. They haven't been there. They haven't walked the road. They have no idea of, of how to be a king and how to lead a united nation. He hears from the people who are ultimately getting a paycheck from him. I heard this story about a, CEO, a guy who becomes CEO. His name's Frank. He, he's moving up in the company, becomes CEO, and as he's about to take the position, the current CEO sits him down and says, Frank, I want you to know something. You're about to get a whole lot funnier. He says, what do you mean? He says, next meeting we have here, you're going to come down and you're going to give a joke, and everyone's going to laugh. He's like, okay, why are you telling me that? Here's why I'm telling you that. Because you're not funny. <laughs> but everyone here gets a paycheck from you, so you're about to get a whole lot funnier. It's the same thing. He goes to the people who are getting a paycheck from him, the people who, who grew up with him, his buddies. What do we do? How, what would you do if you were in my shoes? They have no idea how to be king. This guy's he's, he's like a, the breadwinner for us. This is our meal ticket. Here's what I want you to do, he says. The story goes on. <clears throat> he asks them, what's your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And they respond with exactly what he wants to hear. He finally found somebody, given enough time, to tell him what he wants to hear so that he can do exactly what he wants to do and end up in the place he ultimately does not want to be. And if we're not careful in our own lives, this is how it plays out for us. There's a problem, there's a situation, and we get some advice, but it's not what I want to hear, it's not how I want to do it. But we do what we want, and we end up in the place we don't want to be. Well, these men, <clears throat> that's kind of the advice they give. They have no idea. Hey, hey, we have an idea. Here's what you should say to the people. Here's how you should respond to the people that are asking you to lighten the yoke that your father put on us. Here's, here's what we want you to do. Here's what we think God's will for the people is. The story continues. The young men who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make your yoke lighter. Your father was strong, and he put this heavy yoke on them. So you want to be bigger than your father. So here's what you do. Tell them this. Tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. And it's kind of this, this, uh, uh, like, this tongue-in-cheek saying, like Solomon must have been this really big guy because in these, in these days, food was very scarce. So if you were kind of heavy or overweight, it was a sign of authority. It was a sign of power. It was a sign of wealth. Solomon's supposed to be like the wealthiest man alive. So chances are, as far as we can tell, Solomon was a really big guy, which just showed everyone else that he was this massively wise, powerful ruler. He's saying, you think my father was big? My little finger is thicker than my dad. It's kind of like that, that scene in Crocodile Dundee where the guy comes up to rob him and he pulls out a little knife and Crocodile Dundee's like, that's not a knife, this is a knife. You think my dad was bad? You've seen nothing yet. You thought he was heavy-handed? Just wait till you see what I'm about to do. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier, they say. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you Scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all of the people returned to Rehoboam. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king does exactly what we expect him to do in the story. He answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. 
Now, if you read through this whole story, it goes into this, this great detail about how hard he's going to be. He, basically, there's going to be no griping, no complaining. You, I, I, I'm, I'm the king. I'm in charge. Everybody does what I say. You thought it was bad under my dad? Just wait till you see what I'm about to do. So he begins to tell them. <clears throat> I'm going to scourge you. My dad used whips. I'm going to use scorpions. And scorpions have boats of glass and, and, and rock tied onto the end of them. My, my, my dad built cities. I'm going to build nations. And he goes into this massive detail about how heavy his hand is going to be and how hard he's going to be on these people. You thought it was bad before. You have no idea what you're asking for. You thought my dad was a tough king. I'm going to be a tougher king. You thought my dad built great things. I'm going to build even greater things. Then what's really interesting here is when all of Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, which means they already had a response ready. They came to this meeting pretty sure that King Rehoboam wasn't going to take their advice. So they begin to read this response, and I'm going to read it to you in words they say, which isn't going to make a lot of sense. Then I'll kind of update it to the 21st century. But they use these words from another rebel, a rebel named Sheba, who rebelled during the time of King David. And they use these words that kind of have revolutionary tones to it and just kind of this in-your-face. And it's really like super, super offensive for a king to hear what they're about to say. So you're going to hear it, and it's going to be, oh, this doesn't make any sense. But when I begin to break it down, and I'll try not to be crude, but I want you to get the idea of how offensive it was for a king to hear this. They expected the king not to answer, so they come to the king with this answer. They use these words. What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Like, hey, everybody, just, just go home. To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. Now, to us, it doesn't mean much. But here's what essentially what they're saying to the king. Hey, Rehoboam, you want us to build nations? You want us to build cities? You want us to build palaces? Go build your own blankety-blank cities and palaces. We want no part of it. As a matter of fact, we don't even recognize you as king. We don't recognize your rule, your authority. We want no part of what you're doing. You want it done. You're the son of, of, of Solomon, who was the son of David, the third generation. You should know better. Go do it yourself. We're out. And they literally turn and they walk away. And they don't recognize him at all as king. I mean, could you imagine looking your author- like authority over a nation? Sorry, you have no rule here. But you live in my kingdom, not anymore. We'll do our own thing. So the Israelites went home. The story continues. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. Now, you need to know this before we move on with the story, <clears throat> that when you kind of dive into the Old Testament, like Israel's referred to as many things. There's the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, then there's Israel and Judah and Ephraim. And and what's interesting is that at this point in time, the nation kind of splits, but it doesn't split into like six tribes and six tribes. It splits into two tribes and ten tribes. Rehoboam ends up with two. And ten tribes leave his rule, and they go and they form their own nation under Jeroboam. Jeroboam, we want to do as king anyway. You be our king. Like, Rehoboam, good luck. Do whatever you want, but you're not doing it with us. And the nation of Israel splits, and it never becomes a united nation again. Israel's way at home. Everyone else, they were left to rule, or left to be under Rehoboam's rule. King Rehoboam, he didn't pay attention to what they said at all. He's still in the idea of, well, I'm king. No one tells me what to do. 
and the young men who were behind him getting the paycheck was, I'll tell you what to do. Here's exactly what. You just ignore them. You just, you just continue to do it. Rehoboam's like, okay, well, you won't do it for me. I'll go get your kids. I'll get another 150,000 workers, and I'll build my own cities. So King Rehoboam sends out Adinoram, who was in charge of the forced labor under his rule. But all of Israel stoned him to death. You want your stone? I got your stone. Apparently, you didn't listen the first time. Here's the stone you want. And they stoned this man to death. From this day forward, Israel never unites again. Israel from this day has been in rebellion against the house of David. And it looks a little like this. Here's a little map we showed you before of, of what it looked like under the rulers. It's Saul, David, Solomon, and forever it's split. Jeroboam takes the northern tribe, which is now referred to as Israel. Ten tribes go with Jeroboam. Rehoboam takes the southern tribe, which is sometimes called Judah, with two tribes. And they live forever divided. One king, one man, had the opportunity to be a king over a united nation. But he took some bad advice and destroyed the nation forever. One stubborn guy just wouldn't listen to good advice. You see, what's, what's interesting about this for all of us is that there's somebody in our world who knows where we are and knows how to get ultimately to where we want to be. The question is, will we listen or will we react like Rehoboam? Well, I'm king. Maybe I'm not really king. Maybe I'm just, I'm a man. I'm a dad. I got it. I'm an employee. I can figure it out. I'm a mom. I've done this before. I'm a wife. I know how to speak to my husband. Don't tell me what to do. Or can we learn lessons? And perhaps get to ultimately where we wish we could be. So just a few things. We're going to apply this and then we'll wrap up. Here are some lessons that we can learn from the life of Rehoboam. First lesson is this. Doing what you want to do won't get you where you want to be. Doing what you want to do won't get you where you want to be. And you might think you have the answers. You might think you know. I mean, we, we, we've all lived, but doing what you want to do isn't ultimately going to get us where we want to be in our marriage, in, in our finances. I heard some great financial advice the other day. I thought this was brilliant. It, it, it said this. There are two kinds of people in the world, people who pay interest and people who make interest. Which one do you want to be? And I thought, I wish somebody told me that when I was in college, before I got my first credit card. Great advice for all of you young people who don't have credit cards yet. Two kinds of people in the world. Do you want to pay interest or do you want to make interest? Who do you want to be? I know the person I'd like to be. I wish somebody told me when I was younger. Doing what you want to do isn't going to get you where you want to be. And where you want to be, it isn't, it, the path to get there isn't by listening to what you want and doing what you want. It doesn't end up in the same place. And way too often we do this. We, we, we treat people the way we want. We, we get advice from the people who don't know anything about how to treat people, and then we end up in broken marriages, or we end up in relationships that spiral out of control. We, we have jobs that we like, but we have no idea how to get there. And we, so we're just going to do what we want, and we're going to ask people around us who don't know any better, and then we get there, and, and the job isn't at all what we expected or what we wanted. Doing what you want to do isn't going to get you where you want to be. The second life lesson is this. <clears throat> Somebody knows what you need to do, to get from where you are to where you want to be. So our job really is to pre-decide to listen, to not resist, to not put up our walls, but to listen. We all need people in our life who have nothing to gain by telling us the truth. 
If you're only ever going to people who have something to gain or something to lose by the advice they're going to give you, you'll never hear what you need to hear. You'll hear what you want to hear. So you all need people around you who you can go to, people you trust, who, who aren't going to gain anything or lose anything by telling you what, you what you need to hear and by you doing what you need to hear. That's when you know it's a truthful answer. Who do you go to? Who do you trust? When you're up against the wall, when there's a challenge ahead of you, when you know you're not where you ultimately want to be, who's speaking into your life? We all need to hear things we don't want to hear to get ultimately to where we want to be. Mature people, mature people know this. Mature people know when they don't know, and they seek out those who do know. Mature people know, I, I, don't, I don't know how to handle this. I'm really not sure what to do, but I'm going to find somebody who does. Not somebody who I like, not somebody who, who thinks they know, but somebody who actually knows. That's what mature people do. Immature people, they seek out people who will tell them exactly what they want to hear. Which are we going to be? I mean, regardless of where you find yourself this morning, you may be here and say, well, I don't believe any of this mumbo-jumbo. I don't even believe the Bible. Here, here's the amazing thing. You should read the Bible anyway, whether you believe it or not, because these truths are true, whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God, whether you believe in the Bible or you don't believe in the Bible. But here's the amazing thing. You'll read the Bible and you'll realize all of this is true and all of this works. Like, like God knew this thousands and thousands of years ago. Like God's intention for us was never to walk through our life alone trying to figure it out or surround ourselves with people who don't know any better. As a matter of fact, that's one of the most tragic things about the story. We'll wrap up with that. But I just want to, uh, before we get there, I want to give us just a few pieces of advice. Just, just some free advice of how we can move forward with this. And this is going to make some of you a little uncomfortable. I get that. But I think if we're going to learn from the story of Rehoboam and we're going to move forward and we're not going to be the immature people who just hear what we want to hear and do what we want to do and end up where we don't want to be, we're going to want to be the mature people who maybe hear the things we don't want to hear and do the things we don't want to do to ultimately get to the place we do want to be. Here are three pieces of advice. The first piece of advice is this. I want you to write down three things. I want you to write down three things... <clears throat> You can skip this one. Just go to the next one for me. Sorry. I know I jumped you. I want you to write down three things that you wish you had been doing all along, and I want you to begin doing them. I mean, I know that's, that's like super basic, super simple advice. Write down three things you wish you had been doing all along, and then simply begin doing them. What do I need to do to get from where I am to where I need to be? Do I need to wake up earlier? Do I need to, to start a different routine? Do I just need to start responding to my wife in a different way? Do I just need to start uh, being more accepting of this thing in, in my child? What do I have to do to ultimately get from where I am to where I want to be? Write three things down and simply begin doing them. It's amazing how that will change your life. Don't be like Rehoboam. Don't pre-decide, no one's going to tell me what to do, I'm king. But decide ahead of time. If I can listen, I can go from where I am to where I always wanted to be. Write down three things that you need to do and start doing them. And then kind of the inverse of that is write down three things that are hindering you from where you want to be and stop doing them. I mean, I know it sounds so simple, but it is that simple. What are you doing now that's not getting you where you want to be? I want to be fit, but I wake up every morning and I go to Dunkin' Donuts and I have lunch at McDonald's and then I finish off my day with pizza. I don't understand why I'm not fit. Three things. Stop doing them. I mean, it, it, that's simple, but every area of life, it's that way. I don't like where my marriage is. Well, stop yelling at your spouse every morning and stop making it difficult when they come to you with their struggles. I don't like the way my kids are treating me. You know, we're, we're polite in public, but the truth is they can't wait to graduate and go home and, and leave and never come back. What are you doing? 
How are you talking to your kids? How are you, how are you building relationships? How are you creating memories? Find three things you're doing that are upsetting where you ultimately want to be and stop. I know, like, this is like worth the price of admission this morning. But guys, it really is that simple. Doing makes all the difference. Not planning. Doing makes all the difference. Not daydreaming. Doing makes all the difference. So you can dream and you can plan and you can write, but you have to stop doing some things. and You have to start doing other things. If you know there are some things from between where you are and where you want to be, stop doing them. If there are some things you need to do, start doing them. And if you're really not sure what to do, and this is the hardest part of the message today, if you really aren't sure what you want to do, ask the people who love you most. Chances are they've already told someone else. They're already praying about it. Your kids are already talking about it in school. Your, your, your husband's already talking about it with his best friend. Your wife's already told her three best friends. It's on social media somewhere. I, miss my, I wish my husband would be more like or do more like or say more like. I wish my wife would treat me more like. It's there. They've talked about it. They know. If you're not sure what's in between you and what, who you ultimately want to be, ask somebody who cares about you. They already know. You wonder the real tragedy to this whole story with Rehoboam? He grew up the son of Solomon. Solomon was considered the wisest man to ever live. As a matter of fact, he wrote books about his wisdom. And one book in particular, he wrote this statement that I, it's, it's almost like I'm sure Rehoboam had heard this growing up, but he just simply wouldn't apply it. He says this in Proverbs The prudent see danger, and they take refuge. The prudent see danger come and go, uh oh. So something's coming. If I keep doing this, it's, it's going to take me to this place, and I, that's not where I want to be. If I keep walking this road, it's going to take me to a place I know I don't want to be. What, what do I do? I see danger. They take refuge. But the simple, or another translation, says the stupid from the wisest man in the world. They keep going, and they pay the penalty. You've heard me talk about this before. I call this the prudent prayer. Are you going to be like the prudent? Or are we going to keep living our life like the simple, the naive, stupid? See danger coming. But I got it. I'm king of my own castle. I'm man. I'm woman. I'm mom. I'm a teenager. I know better than my parents do. I keep walking that road right towards disaster. You have to know where you are. You have to know where you want to be. And then you need to find the people in your life who are going to tell you exactly what you do to get there. It may not be what you want to hear. It may not be the road you wanted to walk. But it'll get you where you want to be. Somebody knows how to get from where you are to where you want to be. The question for you and me this morning is, will you listen? Will you be like the prudent man? who sees danger coming a long way off and responds, or you be like the simple who sees danger and just keeps going right toward it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this, this passage, Lord, for this incredible story, God, that's just so much more than a story. God, for, for the example we can see that you set forth in Scripture. 
God, whatever challenges are before us, whatever things that, that, that lie between us and where we ultimately want to be, would you give us the courage this morning, God, to find the people, God, the, the, the people who have been there and done that, Lord, the wiser people, the people that, that know how to get us from where we are to where we want to be. Would you, would you help us to find these people, Lord, to hear the advice and to take it? God, maybe to stop doing certain things and start doing other things to ultimately get us to the place where we wish we would be. Father, would you help us to be like the prudent man who sees danger coming a long way off? And would you give us the courage and wisdom to know what to do and how to do it? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.